One of the key lessons that I learned from this movie is that we look to religion not to enhance our reality, but to find a means of escape from it. It's not about what we feel. It's about what's true and what's real, but religion doesn't teach us those things. The stories in the pretty lights are a real thing, and they exist to keep our mind from thinking rationally about what we believe and just focusing on the belief. He's doing what we all do. Yeah. And all of us do this with our religions. We throw out the parts that we don't like and we follow the parts that we do like. And then when confronted with the decisions to not follow this, that, and the other, most of the time it's just a matter of, well, you know, I don't know if I'm right about this or wrong about this, but one thing I know for sure is that God loves me anyway. We all choose what we consider to be the better story. Right. It's just in our nature. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And, and it's, it's time to get Unbound. Don't let the stories and pretty lights fool you. Religion is darkness. <laughs> And if that doesn't encapsulate the overlying theme of this show, I don't know what does. Yeah. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are looking at the movie Life of Pi, scene by scene, moment by moment, instance of theistic drivel by instance of theistic drivel. This movie screams its point and whispers its counterpoint. But to be honest, it was also one of the things that I believe kept me in Wicca for as long as I stayed. Yeah. And I'll get into some of the reasons why later. For right now, we're going to give Christians Behaving Badly a break for this week. Uh, I feel like the movie episodes go yeah, long. they go very long. And I figure let's just get to the point because this movie I've brought up on the show enough times mm -hmm. that I think that it deserves the full treatment so people get the context. So Christians Behaving Badly will return next week with our episode on snake handlers. <laughs> Uh, that's going to be a fun one. It's going to yeah, be a fun one fun. to research. It's going to be a fun one to do, mostly because of the absurdity of it. I mean, yeah. a lot of people have uh, have met their very untimely end through it. So mm. that's not the fun part. But no. the fun part is just the overall silliness yeah. of this kind of belief. But it's also a really good example of what can happen when your mind gets too addled on the Kool-Aid and you start believing all kinds of crazy shit. Kind of like pie. Kind but of. but Pi's uh, story isn't quite as extreme as that. No. Just before we get started, our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. Any size donation is going to help us keep the show going and make it better. So if you have the means to help, we would appreciate your assistance in helping more people get and stay Unbound. That's what we're here for, and that's what you can help us do with your dollars. You can also help us with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, your good reviews, sharing content on social media. All of these things help podcasts grow, and it's just another way that you can help us move this thing of ours forward. So if you are a little bit financially challenged right now, I mean, who isn't? We get that, and all of the other ways that I mentioned are going to help us too. So if you have the means to help us financially, once again, patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network is where you're going to go to make your pledge. And we thank you in advance for at least considering supporting us in that way. And I'm going to keep that part of things short and sweet tonight because I just want to get right into the analysis of this movie. It was a fun one when I yeah. saw it 
at the beginning, I still think that it's a good movie. Oh, I just look at it yeah. from a very different perspective at this point. Yeah. So with that little bit of a setup, let's get right into the conversation. Stories, pretty lights, nice smells, nice music, bonfires, pantheons galore. So many things that keep us tethered to religion. Mm. I don't know if Pi realizes just how pagan his belief system actually was. <laughs> but the better story aspect of belief is very real whether you're choosing a pantheon to follow or just following your favorite flavor of Christianity. It's all rather personal. And Pi made faith something that was ultra-personal to, I'm sorry, the point of absurdity. Yeah. So... We're going to tell this story as it plays out in the movie. There are differences between the movie and the book because there always are. But if the Cliff's Notes are any indicator, the differences are minor. And yeah, I have only read the Cliff's Notes, although I'd really like to read this book at some point. It was on one of Liam's reading lists like a few yeah, years ago. That's why so. we have it. Yeah. So that, that's enough of our personal uh, back and forth here. Let's get back to the analysis <laughs> of the movie. So the house lights dim. And we open to animals, animals everywhere. It's a gorgeous setting. And a quick establishing shot later, we find out that this is actually a zoo, a very nice, well-maintained zoo. Seriously, this place is beautiful. And, you know, I don't really like zoos. I have certain misgivings about zoos from a moral and ethical standpoint. That's just me. You know, that's one of the wonderful things about uh, being unbound is that you can make your own moral and ethical choices. And I'm not going to tell people not to go to a zoo. <laughs> but for me, I just sort of have a thing about zoos. So the scene for this movie is set somewhere in the real late 60s or early 70s. Because we're never quite sure just how many right. years go by here. But it looks to me like Pi at the beginning of this is probably around 10 or 11 and yeah. and then he's an older teenager when all the all the meat of this story takes place. Yes. So I'm calling it like late 60s. The bulk of this story or where it takes its turn is in July of 1977. So now apparently there is an interview going on and we're hearing about the interviewee's birth. He tells the story about his birth and how fortunate happenstance brought the help his mother needed during labor. He says, born and raised in Pondicherry, in what was the French part of India, my father owned the zoo, and I was delivered on short notice by a herpetologist who was there to check on the Bengal monitor lizard. And unfortunately, uh, the lizard kind of came, came to a kind of a sticky end. Mother and baby were just fine, but the lizard managed to escape and as Pi recounts the story, it was trampled by a frightened cassowary. <laughs> it reminds me of those videos where people rehabilitate animals and then yeah. they release them and boom, here comes the hawk. That's nature for you. That's all yeah. I can say about yeah, that. Is. That's nature. And on the heels of that, he starts talking about the way of karma. And then he says the way of God. So God and karma are kind of already meshed in his right. head. So this is a... a classic case of everything happens for a reason and there's something out there doling out judgment and reward and yeah no sorry there really <laughs> isn't on either count but we find out that this person was named not after a math term like the interviewer thinks but after a swimming pool his honorary uncle or momji's favorite swimming pool a public pool in paris called the bassine molitor 
Apparently, the description of it was enough to convince Pi's parents to land him with this name that was practically under obligation to cause him problems later. Yeah. Anybody ever hear a boy named Sue? <laughs> um, Johnny yeah. Cash? There will be people out there that know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And this isn't far off. No. It really isn't. So Manji, his real name is Francis, was also the one who taught Pi to swim, something that would save Pi's life later on. And he recounts this story of how he actually got his name. He says that before he was born, his father and his best friend, Francis, a.k.a. Mamji, were talking. And Mamji tells him, if you want your son to have a clean soul, you must take him one day to swim in the Piscine Molitor. And Pai says that he didn't understand why his father took this so much to heart. I think that it was just that they were really, really close friends. And I think Mamji also had a way with stories. Yeah, yeah, he seems to. And that led to this. With one word, my name went from an elegant French swimming pool to a stinking Indian latrine. I was pissing everywhere. Oh. I mean, you could see it coming. Yeah. You could oh, see it coming. As soon as I saw Piscine Molitor, yeah. I'm like, oh, God, yep, that's mm -hmm. where this is going. And the ribbing and the bullying goes on for an entire school year. But... When he goes back to school the following year, he introduces this new persona that he's concocted, that being not someone who's pissing everywhere, but a kid <laughs> named Pi. Some of the diehards weren't having it, though. He pitched his new moniker in every class on the first day of school, trying to get away from the whole pissing thing. Yeah. But it was during his math class that he won over the crowd. He stood at the board and kept calculating Pi out to who knows how many digits in his head and... The louder they cheered, the faster he came up with the next decimal place and just kept writing it on the board, yeah. row after row after row. He says it even made the bullies cheer for him at yeah. that point. So that was the end of Piscine and the beginning of Pi. And it's at this point where we learn that the interviewer is actually a writer. He was trying to write a second book. He, he already had one book out that Pi has apparently read, mm -hmm. but he was trying to write a second and just kept falling flat, you know, getting to a certain point in the story and then just getting completely blocked. I know the feeling. Yeah. And I went full Jack Torrance in my head with this one. Lots of ideas, no good ones. Yeah. But instead of going crazy and murdering his family, this guy just, uh, he gives up and trashes the entire thing. Two years worth of work in the circular file. But then a stranger at a cafe in India points him in the direction of a certain French Indian with a story that would definitely give him some good inspiration. And this is what Mamji said to the author. He says, so a Canadian who's come to French India in search of a story. Well, my friend, I have an Indian in French Canada who has a most incredible story to tell. It must be fate that the two of you should meet. And this part, I have to admit, kind of irritated yeah. me. Pai asks the author what Mamaji, that's, I think that's the way you pronounce it, Mamaji, yeah. had told him. And apparently all he was told was that he knew of a French Canadian with a story that would make him believe in God. Mm. I'd like to think that this wasn't the point of the movie, but it started to feel that way not too much further in. So now we learn about where Pai comes from and how the zoo came to be. He says that when the French handed Pondicherry back to the people in 1954, they decided that they needed some kind of commemoration. And it was Pai's father who came up with the idea of making a zoo out of the local botanical garden. So mm -hmm. 
He owned the animals. It was his business, his operation, but the garden would still remain the possession of the town. And it was there that Pai's parents met. They met, they married, and a year later, his older brother Ravi was born, and then he was born two years after that. And this is the point where we start learning about Pai's spiritual journey. And again, another little irritating line here for me anyway, he says, none of us knows God unless someone introduces us, which is true enough. And the infuriating part about that is that usually you're introduced when you're too young to think about whether or not it's true. That was Pai, too, because it was his mother who started telling him stories about Krishna when he was really, really little. And that was where the allure of religion was born inside his head. But I heard that line and I just said, yep, there's the setup. So he tells the author that he was first introduced to God as a Hindu. He says there are 330 million gods in the Hindu religion. I can't even fathom that. That's like one for almost every person in America. Yeah, that's Um, a lot. That's a lot of deities. Yeah. 330 million deities. Yeah. It's mind-numbing, but, you know, it just goes to prove that there's a god for every purpose and and one that can live inside every head. Yeah. You know, there's there is the potential for as many gods as people can dream up. And if one person can dream up 330 million, well, there's 330 million more. I mean, <laughs> that would take a yeah. lot of work. Yeah. But I felt like I was letting a few of them live comfortably inside my head for a while there. So, you know, now we learn about all of the gods that Pi has met and apparently believes in right up to the present day. We flash back to his mother telling him the story of Krishna and Pi is obviously fascinated. He's also very young. Yes. To be honest, it is a cool story. But here's the thing. Most myths are. Yeah. Yeah. And in comparison to some of these religions, in some of these stories, especially within Hinduism, the gospel is kind of boring. Yeah. It really kind of lacks a certain je ne sais quoi. You know what I mean? And then he says something that I hadn't really thought about in terms of my own experience of polytheism, but it really is true. He said, the gods were my superheroes. Pai was enthralled with the mythologies, particularly the Hindu gods, but his father knew what was what. And this is where he comes out with my favorite line in this movie. It's one of two that I think provide a good point counterpoint. And it was Pai's father who says, don't let the stories and pretty lights fool you. Religion is darkness. So Appa, a.k.a. Pai's father, wound up with polio as a child, and that was the end of his faith. Even Pai said, God didn't save him, Western medicine did. So the rational thinking's in there. Oh, yeah. I never saw someone this good at letting the rational and the sensational so peacefully coexist inside his head Mm -hmm. because his father's thinking is definitely in there. But then there's all this theistic garble that it just all seems to peacefully coexist. And all I can say to that is I'm glad that I never reached that point. Yeah. Yeah. Because I have no idea where my thoughts would be going on this subject today if they were allowed to peacefully coexist, and they never were. So Pai's mother was estranged from her family because they didn't like Pai's father. They thought he was beneath her. And it's not said outright, but Santosh, which is Pai's father's actual name, is in fact an atheist. And you can tell just by the way that he presents his ideas. Yes. Pai says that his mother's religion, quote, was all she had of her past, This is one of the things that keeps people in religion. It's an anchor to their sense of self. 
Right. So she clung to that because that was all she had left of her upbringing and what she knew of her life before she gave that up to be with this man. So Gita, that's Mai's mother, married his father knowing that she was choosing him over her entire family. Yeah. And she did so of her own free will. And I'm just sitting there thinking that must be one high quality guy to give up all of that to be with. And my thought would prove to be correct. I really liked Appa. He and I would have very much seen eye to eye. Yeah. In real life, I think I would have enjoyed just sitting there playing a game of chess with this guy mm. and just talking about life and, you know, just the way that we view this thing called life. It just seems to me like we view it from a very similar lens. So... There's the point counterpoint that probably went on at this dinner table a lot. The theist and the atheist in love always disagreeing but keeping up the dialogue. And, you know, love like that is rare. Yeah. These two get along well. Mm. And they have very different views of certain things. And adding to that thought, I absolutely love the dynamic here between Pi's parents. A lot of Indian women aren't this outspoken. But this one knew that she had a good man on her hands and she could say anything in front of him. She also knew that he valued her as a person. He valued her opinions. He valued her intellect. He valued everything that she brought to the table. Right. And I think that's part of the reason why she decided to ditch her entire family right. <clears throat> and run off with him. Santosh was uh, very reasonable. And you could tell he was very loving and very driven to do right by his family. He was really my type of parent. We're going to yeah. figure this out in a couple of minutes. <laughs> in his house, anyway, everyone was allowed an opinion. And Santosh did with his family what I always say we should be doing when confronted with theist ideas. He listens. He presents his counterpoint, then shuts up. Yeah. And I don't think that there's a way of dealing with that that's more effective or more conducive to good dialogue. Mm. And that's what I saw between the two of them was good dialogue. They yeah. knew they were never going to agree. Right. But each one of them was in a position where they could say anything to the other. And that makes a huge difference. I so wish, I, I so wish that this particular character of Santosh or Appa had a bigger role in the story because, yeah. yeah. I wish I had a little bit more of this messaging making its way between my ears at the point in my life when I first saw this movie. It oh, would have yeah. done me some good. Yeah. Pi then tells how he, quote, met Christ in the mountains while visiting relatives. His brother Ravi tells him that he'll give Pi two rupees if he goes into the church and drinks the holy water. So he does. He's a bored kid. Yeah. So he does it. And again, starts letting the pretty lights fool him. He walks into this church and becomes enthralled with the Stations of the Cross. And he lingers there long enough for the parish priest, who apparently saw everything, to bring Pi a glass of water. And the priest comes up to him and says, you must be thirsty, I brought you this. Mm. All I could think of in that moment was the friar bailing out the guilty Jean Valjean yeah. and handing him the candlesticks. <laughs> But uh, not quite as severe, but still, I mean, that, that kind of thing could offend some people. Mm -hmm. And it could have offended this priest, right. but he took it in stride. I will give him that. Yeah. I'll, I'll give him that. He was a good reflection of what they think Christ is. So yeah. definitely props for the way that he handled that. As much as I admired the way that he dealt with the situation, mm -hmm. now we're going to get his take on the nature of God and... 
you know, for a split second there, I'm thinking maybe there, there's that rational mind trying to claw its way to the surface again yeah. with Pi. He seems a little appalled by it. And he asked the priest, why would God sacrifice his son? And he gets the standard blathering of Catholic rhetoric about how we can't understand God, but we can understand Jesus, yada, yada, yada. And <laughs> Pi asks him again, if God is so perfect and we're not, why would he want to create all of this? Why does he need us at all? And here's the real irritating answer that he gets, and it's the same catch-all that you hear pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Every flavor of Christianity may be a little bit different, but at the end of the day, the rhetoric is the same pretty much whoever you ask. And the priest says, all you have to know is that God loves us. And my first thought there, I'm thinking, um... <clears throat> For I have come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Um, aside from the obvious problems of pitting family members against each other. Yeah. I personally would never tell someone I love that they weren't worthy of me. Yeah. So all I have to know is that God loves me. How the fuck am I supposed to know? Because there's no instance in the Bible where he ever says that he does. And then we get this. Yeah. You know, and I mean, yes, we also get this is my commandment that you love one another, that your joy may be full, but never anything about, oh, and by the way, I love you too. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And it's a very important point that I've brought up more than once, but it's worth repeating. All we have to know is that God loves us. Okay. How are we supposed to know? Not by anything that this kid is about to go through. No. Okay. In the story. Then Pi comes back with, the more I listened to the priest, the more I came to like this son of God. No, 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 no. No. Pi, Pi, listen to me. It wasn't the son of God that you were coming to like more. It was the priest that you were coming to like more. Okay. Let's make sure that we have that perspective right. In my opinion, anyway, they went out of their way to make this priest look like a more accurate representation of Jesus anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. you look at this guy and you're kind of seeing a lot of Jesusness. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was the priest that he was enthralled with, not the message of the gospel. No. So then we see just what kind of a tossed salad this kid's mind was about spirituality. <laughs> because as he's leaving the church, he says, thank you, Vishnu, for introducing me to Christ. It's all so fucky. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it it's, is, but he's just got a very big imagination. Huge. Huge imagination. And we're going to find out how huge. the only way. It's the only way he can accept all of these different religions. Well, sure. It's but, yeah. But he's doing what everybody does, and he's taking the best parts and adopting yeah. them and throwing out anything that doesn't excite him or that he doesn't believe yeah. in or that he that he disagrees with. So he's doing what we all do. Yeah. And all of us do this with our religions. We throw out the parts that we don't like and we follow the parts that we do like. And then when confronted with the decisions to not follow this, that and the other, most of the time it's just a matter of, well, you know, I don't know if I'm right about this or wrong about this. But one thing I know for sure is that God loves me anyway. That's the cure all. Yeah. For all of it. I can't repent of sins that I don't know I'm committing. You know, I guess I'll hear yeah. about it on Judgment Day. 
But I also know that my sins are covered under the blood, whether they're old sins or new sins and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are so many ways, yeah. so many ways around any doctrine you want to throw out. Then he discovers Islam and more pretty lights and fanfare because that's all it is. He's clearly enthralled by the aesthetics of yes. all of these religions. Yeah. Because honestly, that's all any of them have to offer. And there is a particular beauty yeah. to the uh, to the way that the average Muslim handles their prayer life. Yeah. There is a clear aesthetic to it. Yeah. And exactly. I can certainly see um I can certainly see especially a young person who is still finding himself mm-hmm. finding this particularly enthralling too. Right. But Pai just likes religion. Yeah. He likes the notion of religion. He likes the notion. He lights the pretty lights. Yes. And, and um, the interesting thing is that when he talks about where he lived in Pontesherry, right? Yeah. He talks about how he lives in French India. So you've got to have people speaking French. Yeah. And he's living near the Muslim quarter. Mm-hmm. So he's like, he's in the melting pot. Right. You know, where everybody just sort of intersects. Right. So he's lived around these people his whole life. And he's had exposure to all of these religions. Yeah. Because, you know, again, just like you said, there's a lot of different people who reside in this area. And the opportunities to become indoctrinated here are many. Yeah. (laughs) That's for sure. But Abba is a very practical thinker. He sees Pai praying at a mosque earlier in the day and makes this fun little observation later. They're sitting around the dinner table and he says, you only need to convert to three more religions, Pacine, and you will spend your life on holiday. (laughs) (laughs) He'll get every religious holiday off. But then in a more serious tone, Appa says, believing in everything at the same time is the same as not believing in anything at all. And boy, would I learn that lesson a little bit later on in my own life. Yeah. And not long after I saw this movie either. Then Appa says, instead of leaping from one religion to the next, why not start with reason? Yeah. So you see, you get all of this buildup, shouting the point, and then this little whisper of a counterpoint. And to make his point a little bit clearer, Appa says, you know, we've learned more from science in the last 500 years than we've learned from religion in the last 5,000. Yeah. And Amma then has to interject with science can tell us what's going on out there, but not in here, pointing to her heart. And by in here, you know, I, I hate the term in my heart. You know, I feel something in my heart. The only thing I feel in my heart is a heartbeat. And fortunately, yeah. that's true. So we're really talking about emotions, feelings, individuality. That's where we find the gods. And I think that's more what she's saying here. But it really is ingrained in her. So... In her mind, it really is that deep in her heart. But here's the thing. Science can actually tell you what's going on in here. It's called psychology. And it's something that I wish I understood more. Because the more you understand about psychology, the more you understand why you believe stuff like this. And when it comes to religion, the more you understand why you believe it, the less believable it's going to become. Right. So... Yeah, you actually, science can tell us what's going on, quote unquote, in here, and we should be listening. Appa kind of makes a concession here. He says that he'd prefer Pi choose a single path over this mishmash of beliefs that he's trying to live at the same time. What he actually says is, I'd rather you believe in something that I disagree with than to accept everything blindly. 
And that begins with thinking rationally. Right. I don't know about, I don't know what religion I'm going to eventually agree with if I'm thinking rationally about it. If I'm right. thinking rationally, then I'm going to reject them all. Right. And I think maybe that's the underlying point here yeah. to what he's saying. But then Adult Pie, the one who's giving the interview, comes out with this gem. He says, doubt is useful. It keeps faith a living thing. After all, you can't know the strength of your faith until it's been tested. A little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. But I'm listening to that line and I'm thinking, oh my God, where do I begin? <laughs> if doubt does more to bolster your faith than kill it, you're doing it wrong. You're not letting your intellect have the floor. You're thinking with your emotions, and emotions and good judgment don't always go hand in hand. In fact, they usually, usually don't. don't. Reason and good judgment, on the other hand, usually do. And yeah, I'll agree with the next part, but my question here, and the reason for it will become apparent as we go, is simple. Where was God in any of what Pi was about to go through? Now we get to meet Richard Parker, the tiger. And Pi kind of needs to develop a more healthy appreciation of wild animals. So we find out that the tiger is called Richard Parker because there was a clerical error that kind of switched the name of the person who sold him to the zoo with his name. The person who sold him to the zoo had actually named him Thirsty. So on the paperwork, the seller became Thirsty and the tiger became Richard Parker. And it was just so funny it stuck. Pi kind of had this fascination with yeah. Richard Parker. Yeah. I think that he was fascinated with the power of this animal, but he didn't have enough of a healthy respect of that power at this right. point. He literally tries to hand feed the tiger. And he and Ravi are found literally in the nick of time by Appa, who again inserts a little logic, trying to get him to understand what the consequences could have been. But Pi just comes back with, tigers have souls. I can see it in their eyes. Mm. So because you think it has a soul, it won't bite your arm off if you try to hand feed it. Kid, come on. <laughs> come on. Abba responds with what I think is another warning about religion and religious thinking here. He says, the tiger is not your friend. When you look into his eyes, you're seeing your own emotions reflected back at you. Nothing else. And if that doesn't encapsulate what religion is at its core, mm -hmm. I don't know what does. Yeah. So Ama is just a little bit too motherly in this instance, but I get it. Moms are about protecting their young. Dads are about teaching lessons. Not a hard and fast rule, but we see it more often than not. Appa decides to show Pi what kind of power a tiger really possesses and legit feeds it. A live goat. Yeah. And it goes the way you think. Mostly off camera, but it yeah. goes the way you think. So after that, after we see Pi witness that and his reaction to it, and his reaction is kind of visceral. It's silent, but definitely visceral. At that point, we get a little bit of a time jump. Pi is now in his teens, filling in on drums for a dance class, and he becomes a little distracted by a girl, of course. And, well, distraction kind of turns into obsession and he sort of kind of starts stalking this girl. It's a teenage boy kind of thing to do. But the girl's name is Anandi, Anandi, and she notices that he's like everywhere she is yeah. and calls him out about it. He covers it by asking her questions about the dance and points out a difference in how she ended hers in comparison with the other dancers. And she says that the last move was a lotus flower. 
And um, one of the, I guess, one of the earlier moves was supposed to um, represent a forest. The forest. And here's Pi's suave, debonair ladies' man side coming out. And he looks at her and says, Why would a lotus flower hide in the forest? And he's a smooth operator. It kind of works. Mm. And that's all we see of that exchange. But we know that things are starting to happen between these two. He then takes her to meet Richard Parker, this time from a very safe distance, and then another time jump. Things in the beginning of this movie move really, really quickly. Yeah. Because Pi looks to be about 19 now. It's 1977 at this point. And apparently there have been a few cash flow problems with the zoo, and it's reached a point where the family can't sustain it anymore. And it's reached a point where the family can't sustain it anymore. Abba has a plan in motion that no one is going to like. Right. The plan is to take a freighter to Canada and sell the animals to zoos and refuges in North America where they're actually worth something. They can't get any money for them in India. So they're going to ship them abroad and sell them in North America. He has work lined up in Winnipeg and that plus the proceeds from the sale of the animals will assure their ability to start a new life abroad. It's sad, but sometimes you got to make some tough choices in life, and this was one of them. Things go very quickly from Pi lamenting over having to leave his life, his home, his girlfriend, and everything else, to now we're just on board this ship. And Pi's parents are arguing with Gerard Depardieu over vegetarian meals. Oh, gosh. Oh, he he plays this role. It's a small role, but he plays it well. Yeah. You know? You really hate him. Well, yeah. By the end of the scene, you absolutely hate this oh guy. totally not only is he a boar he's a racist boar yeah. and that's that's even worse mm. because ama is asking about a vegetarian meal they're going to be on the waves for a while here mm-hmm. and he's serving stuff at least the gravy i think there was an issue with the gravy because it was yeah. obviously meat-based and she asks for a vegetarian meal and what does this asshole do he hands her the plate of rice with gravy and puts a sprig of parsley on top of it. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about a fuck you. Mm-hmm. That that was that was a clear fuck you. Oh yeah. Then things start to escalate. He says, I cook for sailors, not curry eaters, and uh, that's where Appa grabs him and shakes him for insulting his wife. Things de-escalate quickly though. It was what it was, and I think that Appa at least decided it was time to let cooler heads prevail. Yeah. Then we learn a little bit about perception from a quote-unquote happy Buddhist on the ship. And I think he has the right attitude about this. He says, on the ship, the gravy isn't meat, it's taste. So, you know, he understands where she's coming from, but he's like, if you look at it this way, if you just forget where it comes from and just enjoy the taste of it, it's not that bad. I don't know if I was a vegetarian. I don't think that that logic would work on me, but I understand what he's saying. Yeah. Totally. And then we cut to Appa feeding the animals with all the skill of a true businessman. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's sedating the shit out of them. And well, I isn't yeah. really happy about it. But the issue there is that the animals, you don't want a bunch of seasick animals on your hand. Yeah. So you'd rather have a bunch of sleepy, lazy animals on your hand than ones that are that are puking all over the place. Right. So that's why he's doing what he's doing. He's like injecting bananas with tranquilizer. So that the monkeys, the orangutans, will uh, yeah. will mellow out, and doing the same with all the food for the animals. 
And it's on the heels of this exchange that we get to hear about when shit turns sour on this trip, because they did. They turned very, very, very sour very yeah. quickly. And there's no buildup to it. All of a sudden, there's just this huge storm and shit starts happening. The storm is tossing the ship about way more than one would think by how easily people are moving below decks. But, you know, this is movie physics. Yes. I'm watching what's going on at the surface here and thinking about how when we go on whale watches. Yeah. It's real difficult if the waters are just a little bit choppy. It's real difficult to walk around. But apparently below decks on this ship, it's not so bad. Pi decides that he wants to go out on the deck and watch the storm. Ravi, his wise older brother, tells him, don't tempt the storm, Pi. So what does he do? He goes out on deck and summons the god of storms to send more rain, more rain. And he gets what he asks for because things are turning bad and they're turning bad quickly. The ship is taking on a lot of water. Alarms are blaring. His family's quarters are completely underwater and he can't find anyone. The animals are all escaping their cages. Yeah. In the book, it's kind of old that the crew is all kind of drunk. We're very drunk. Mm. And they just start setting the animals free. Yeah. And this may or may not have started happening before all of this craziness took place. But, you know, a bunch of drunks on the ship, it could be a good explanation for why it went down. Yeah. Because there's never a concrete answer as to why this ship sinks. But it's going to sink in just a couple of minutes here. I like the uh, the notes in the script about this scene. They kind of paint this picture better than I can. So I'm just going to tell you what it says here. Oxen and deer are visible on the far side of the deck, backlit by emergency lights. Pi hears monkeys screeching, the clatter of hooves pounding. In the distance, sailors shout orders in panicked voices. And Pi comes onto the lower deck where he sees three men. The Buddhist from the dining hall, the Japanese captain, and a sailor arguing with the French cook who has now climbed into the stern of one of the lifeboats that hangs off the side of the ship. Pi goes running to the captain and begs him to save his family, but the captain already knows just how bad things are. He tells Pi not to be scared and gives him a life jacket. Pi doesn't want to leave without his family, and he knows that his father cannot swim. So they guide Pi to the side of the boat, and they remove a section of the railing so that he can get to the lifeboat, and they almost literally push him right over the edge. Yeah. He falls onto the lifeboat because the tarp is still on there. So he falls onto the tarp and kind of bounces around and grabs uh, grabs at the rope that's holding the bow of, of the boat to the side of the ship. He's trying really, really hard not to slip off. The sailors are shouting at the cook who is still just standing at the stern. I mean, this guy's an asshole. He's very every man for himself at this point. Yeah. And he's going to be on that lifeboat. He's going <laughs> to save himself. So Pi is clinging to the side of the boat, and eventually he gets in. They're lowering it into the water when a zebra jumps overboard into the boat. This causes the pulleys to give way, and the boat drops and hits the water with an awful thud. Pi and the zebra are now adrift on these very unfriendly seas. The cook falls out of the boat, and we don't see him again. Now, Pi and friends are drifting further and further from the sinking ship, and he's blowing a whistle somehow thinking that anyone on that ship can do anything to save him. But it's a determined Richard Parker that follows the whistle. Pi tries to hold him off with an oar, but a big wave literally washes him onto the boat. And this, my friends, is a problem. 
So what does Pi do? He jumps out. What else can he do? He's not going to stay in there with the tiger. And this is another big problem. These waves are not being kind to him at all. He's underwater for an amount of time that I can't fathom. Again, movie physics here. Yeah. He sees that the boat is just sinking right near him and is also somehow not being sucked down with it. I'm thinking way too much about the physics here. Suspension (laughs) of disbelief is necessary with this movie. It really is. And while he's down there, he sees a lot of things, but his attention quickly goes to an approaching shark who ignores him and makes a beeline for the struggling animals at the surface. Mm. Pi resurfaces and struggles his way back into the boat. He's crying out for his parents, but he knows. He totally knows. He's screaming, I'm sorry, because of course he thinks he made all this happen by tempting the storm. That's what theistic thinking will do to you. So now it's morning and Pi is still clinging to the oar that he's fashioned at the bow of the boat. He is hanging onto the oar, trying to maintain distance between him and the animals in the boat. He's inspected the boat and has found no sign of Richard Parker. He climbs back in the boat and starts bailing water. We find out that there's a hyena named Hari and a badly injured zebra, but so far no sign of Richard. We do get Orange Juice the orangutan hitching a ride, and Pi refers to the situation now as Pi's Ark. Mm. Uh, we also learned that Orange Juice was a mama and that her baby didn't make it. Yeah. Pi is trying real hard to stay positive while he staves off an increasingly agitated hyena who is getting hungry. Yeah. So, so injured zebra, hungry hyena, that's a wrap for the zebra folks. Mm-hmm. But then Pi discovers that there's a store of food on board and quickly works on a way to protect it. The hyena decides he wants a little orange juice with his breakfast. Mm. And with that, Pi is just done. Yeah. He, it's already starting to wear on him. All of a sudden, though, we find out that there is another passenger on board when Richard Parker, who has been laying low, shows himself. So, of course, now Pi has to abandon ship again. He waits until things seem settled and comes back for more supplies, trying hard to keep distance between him and the tiger. Richard Parker also is getting a little bit restless. Pi manages to stall him for a second, but there isn't any place to go on this boat. He's kind of forced to hang out on the tiny raft that he's built because there's no way he's going to be safe on a boat with an increasingly hungry tiger. No way in hell. Finally, the sun is out and the seas are calm. Pi decides to do the message in a bottle thing because, you know, doing something is better than nothing. So he writes his message in not really a bottle, in a can, and tosses it into the ocean and knows that nothing's ever going to come of it. And of course, with nothing left to do, what does he do? He prays. He says, whatever comes, I want to know. Show me. I'm still not sure what he means by this. I think maybe he wants to know that there's something out there. Yeah, there is that. Or maybe he just wants to know what his future is going to hold at this point, if he's going to make it or not. Yeah. It's kind of an ambiguous sort of prayer. It can mean any number of things. And apparently there is a handbook on board the lifeboat that is there for the landlubbers who find themselves in this predicament to use to stay alive for a little while until somebody finds them. And the advice in it is about as useful as having a tiger on board. My favorite part of this is, above all, don't lose hope. It is the most useful bit of information that we're going to get out of this thing. And the most useful bit of advice that we've heard so far. 
And I'm not sure if he's reading all of this or if it's all tongue in cheek. I'm pretty sure it's all tongue in cheek. Yeah. But he goes through all the steps in the manual about surviving in a lifeboat with a large carnivore. <laughs> I think this is his mind trying to make light of the situation. Yeah. Pie jumps back on the boat and starts yelling like a lunatic at Richard Parker. And then he pees to establish territory. Richard Parker just looks at him like he's crazy, turns to face away from him, and reciprocates the whole territory marking thing Ugh. in a very bitch please sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. No, it's gross. Good. But at least he was able to dive into the water and clean up a little yeah. bit. There was that. So Pi decides that it would be a good idea, it would behoove him at this point to learn how to fish, mostly to feed Richard Parker. And let's just say that Richard starts getting a little bit impatient because he sees the fish swimming by and dives off the boat to chase after them. But of course, the predator is not faster than the prey in this no. environment. So when chasing fish fails, he attempts to pay Pi a little visit. Pi quickly jumps back in the boat and pulls in the raft. Richard Parker is, swing is swimming, but quickly tiring. He gets back to the boat and is now hanging onto the side, trying to claw his way in, but he can't gain a foothold. Pi picks up an axe and threatens Richard with it, but Richard literally has nothing left to do but hang on, and Pi doesn't have the heart to hurt him. So this whole thing goes on for hours, because now it's night and Richard Parker is still clinging to the side of the boat. Pi then launches the raft again and uses a piece of the floorboard to make what's basically a ladder for Richard Parker to grab and get back in the boat. He deploys the ladder, jumps back overboard, and Richard is finally able to get a firm enough footing to climb back in. And Pi is out on the safety of the raft. Yeah. Now we see Pi making an inventory of all his supplies, and he's getting a little bit better at fishing, sort of. He catches this huge fish. And since it's really, really hard to hold on to, he does something very temperate and humane. He wails on it until it's dead. Yeah. Of course, then he feels bad, starts crying over it. He decides to deal with his emotions by apologizing to the fish and then praying to Vishnu, thanking Vishnu for coming to them in the form of a fish and saving their lives. All comes back to the religion. Now things start to get trippy. You know, you're out there in isolation and you start seeing things yeah. after a little while. But I think that this first part of it may have just been the luminescence of the jellyfish. Because yeah. there's a lot of jellyfish around that I just can't seem to leave alone. No. So I think part of it is that, yeah, the jellyfish are there and they look like this. But I think that he's seeing shit. And he's sort of playing along with the fantasy to get out of his own head for a little while. Yeah. But that is very short-lived. A humpback whale shows up to polish off some of the jellyfish. And obviously it upturns this tiny little raft that he's on yeah. and kicks Pi off of it. And this also causes Pi to lose literally all the food that he had because for some reason he thought that it would be a good idea to take everything off the boat, stack it neatly on the raft, and make absolutely no move to secure any of it. Yeah. The ironic part of it is that he brought it all on the raft for safekeeping and, and now, well, Looks like it's going to be fish for two for the foreseeable future here. And that's okay because all of a sudden there are scores of fish literally flying into the boat. Yeah. I thought these were seabirds at first, but no, no, no. They're, they're, it's raining fish. Hallelujah, it's raining fish. 
Pai again attempts to establish his territory, and with a lot of food to contend with, Richard Parker kind of whatevers him and gets down to munching. Yeah, and they're flying fish. Yeah. It's just really weird. It just happens so suddenly. I'm like, okay. A lot of things in this movie just happen suddenly. Yeah. And without any real warning, things move a lot faster. It's a movie. I'm sure that the book is paced a little bit differently, Mm -hmm. but things do happen at kind of a fever rate with this. So in an effort to peacefully coexist, Pi decides to try training Richard Parker. It works better than I would have imagined, but this is always going to be a wild animal. That's just the reality of it. But, you know, the funny thing is that it kind of works because now Richard seems to have his part of the boat. Pi seems to have his... And no one's bothering anybody. Pi has kind of expanded the raft at this point and is writing his memoirs with a pencil that is slowly wearing down to the eraser. A school of dolphins speeds by and then all of a sudden he sees it. There's a ship in the distance. Pi sends up flares, but the ship doesn't come about. It's clearly moving away from them. You know, there's that lovely human compassion that, yeah. uh, that we see so much in life. Day and night come and go. This whole thing goes on for quite a while, as the tally marks on the boat indicate. Pi is now starting to have those weird dreams and visions. He's having hallucinations. He's seeing images in the water. First the animals that they lost, then his mother, then the ship that was supposed to bring them to a better place in their lives laid to rest at the bottom of the ocean. He even says that he's having a problem differentiating between dreams and reality at this point. Which happens a lot in isolation. And here we are again with another storm. Now, I love the irony of this. Pi is praying and calls God, quote, the compassionate and merciful. And it's at that very moment that a huge wave comes up and engulfs him. Pi is kind of starting to lose it. He's yelling to Richard Parker, come out and see God, Richard Parker. Didn't you learn anything from your past experience with this? Yeah. You know, we're out here tempting the storm yet again. But Pi is now kind of scream praying into the storm. You know, I, I know, I know what scream praying is. Yeah. Okay. And he's going through the same kind of crisis that a lot of us go through where we finally get fed up with God's inaction. Yeah. And this is how it comes out with him. He says, I've lost my family. I've lost everything. I surrender. What more do you want? You see, that was me. Yeah. The first time I rage quit, that was me. It's like, I don't know what you want from me. I've given you everything that you've asked for, and you've given me nothing but the shaft. And that's pretty much what he's saying here. And I also had kind of a Job moment with this, you know, the whole suffering and testing sort of thing. Maybe even a Jonah moment, but he's not really running away from anything here. I'm saying more Job than Jonah in this instance. So the storm clears, and somehow Pi and Richard Parker are both below decks, and one is not becoming the other's dinner. I'm sure Pi is looking at this as being God's protection at this point, too. In reality, Richard Parker is exhausted and probably very dehydrated from swallowing seawater. Pi attempts to give him some potable water, and the mighty tiger only has the strength to lay there and half-heartedly drink. Pi at this point is losing hope and he says we're dying Richard Parker I'm sorry Pi calls out to his family and says he's happy he's going to see them soon he is holding Richard Parker's head in his lap and trying to console him and now we get the Joe versus the volcano prayer 
which occurs under the same circumstances yeah. in this movie as it does in that one, yeah. which I think we should also have on deck. Yeah, we should definitely do that one. Pi says that he's ready to die. He says, thank you for my life. I'm ready now. I think that he goes to sleep thinking or hoping that he doesn't wake up. But he does. He wakes up having run aground on a floating island that is largely covered with some weird vegetation. When I saw this, I immediately thought of the gillyweed in yeah. Harry Potter. It kind of yeah, looks like it. does it. look like has that. has that slimy kind of conch shell kind of swirly pattern yeah. on it. And it certainly did look like that to me. But this entire island seems to be made of this stuff. And it's practically covered like... Literally, the surface of this island is practically covered in meerkats. Many, many, many meerkats. So many. And when he wakes up, it's a beautiful day. There isn't a cloud in the sky. Pi is now seeing a ray of hope. In the middle of this island is this magnificent freshwater pool. Pi dives in and drinks deeply several times. And he's just basking in the comfort and tranquility of the setting. Richard Parker is enjoying the meerkat buffet. (laughs) So everything seems to be going great until, for some reason, the meerkats are scattering. Yeah. They are clearly running away from something. They seem to be looking for higher ground because Pi has basically made a hammock in the trees. This is kind of lucky when you think about what's about to happen here, but the meerkats are all trying to find space around him. Pi then falls asleep, but when he wakes up, it's still night, And he looks directly down into the pool below where literally everything in it is dead. There is a gentle breeze and Richard Parker is back on the boat watching from a safe distance because animals just know. Yeah. They know when something's wrong. And when the meerkats scattered, I guess he decided that was his cue to take a powder also. Yeah. So he goes back to the boat and he's just watching all of this start to unfold. Pi then finds what looks to be some sort of pod and he starts peeling back the layers probably looking for some kind of food or maybe water that might be in there something but as he's peeling it back he gets to the middle it's kind of like an artichoke at the middle he finds something very strange and when the camera focuses on this the very first time I saw this I'm, I'm thinking to myself is that what I think it is and yeah it was it was a human tooth He then goes on to describe the entire island as being carnivorous. That pool that he was swimming in earlier apparently turns to acid at night and begins digesting everything that's in it. And the entire island has the power to, uh, at least the surface, that weird gillyweed shit has the capability of starting to digest anything that touches it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of good luck that pies up in that tree. Yeah. Because the movie would be over at this point. Yeah. The book would be over at this point if he wasn't in the tree. Once things are safe again, Pi grabs as many supplies as he can. This mostly consists of seaweed for himself and meerkats to feed Richard Parker. Mm -hmm. And here we get another cringeworthy assessment of the situation. Pi says, even when God seemed to have abandoned me, he was watching. When he seemed indifferent to my suffering, he was watching. When I was beyond all hope of saving, he gave me rest. I'm like, where the hell are you getting all this? Even if it was true, even if it was true, why would that ever be good enough? Why would this level of intervention be good enough? 
why would God choose to let this kid go through all of this stuff for no better reason than to entertain himself? Because honestly, if I know anything about the Hebrew Yahweh, that's the only reason why he would ever even do this much to make sure that Pi stayed alive. So not much later, they find legit land. And it's, again, really, really quick jump because they set sail or push off from this toxic carnivorous island. And in the very next shot, basically... We're running aground, or not really running aground. We're we're pulling the ship toward this uh, sandy beach. So he's found legit land at this point. Um, the backdrop of the island is this lush jungle. Richard Parker jumps off the boat, sizes up the jungle ahead, and disappears without even looking back. Pi is then found, and the people who find him tend to him while he literally grieves Richard Parker. Yeah. And... Then he says, you know, my father was right. Richard Parker never saw me as his friend. After all we'd been through, he didn't even look back. I'm sitting there thinking, ah, light dawns on marble head. But alas, he continues with, but I have to believe that there was more in his eyes than my own reflection staring back at me. I know I felt it, even if I can't prove it. Oh, come on. Appa covered this one well, dude. That's what he meant when he was telling you that you should start with reason, because reason would tell you that if you can't prove it, then the likelihood of it being true is very, very, very small. Yeah. It's not about what we feel. It's about what's true and what's real. But religion doesn't teach us those things. The stories and the pretty lights are a real thing, and they exist to keep our mind from thinking rationally about what we believe and just focusing on the belief. Right. And that's what's happening here. And honestly, it's the best argument that most Christians or most religious people can come up with for continuing to believe the things that they believe. I feel it even if I can't prove it. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, you Mm -hmm. know, right there in one of our old standard hymns. And that is the best that they can do. And I remember one of my friends telling me that she found that hymn particularly irritating because it doesn't answer the question. Right. But there's no answer to the question. There isn't. And that's the point. Then we get Pi's retrospective on the whole experience. He says, you know, I've left so much behind. My family, the zoo, Anandi, India. I suppose in the end, the whole of life becomes an act of letting go. But what always hurts the most is not taking the moment to say goodbye. I was never able to thank my father for all I learned from him, to tell him that without his lessons, I would never have survived. And at that point, I'm thinking, give Mamachi a call, kid. It'll be cathartic. Yeah. It really will. What I want to know is, if you believe in the afterlife, why look at it this way? Why look at it in such a final sort of way? To be honest, I think Appa's messaging was in there, and Pi wrestled with it like he did with his faith. Right. I think he knew the truth. I think we all, at our core, I think we all know the truth, that this is what we get, and when we're gone, we're gone, and there's going to be no happy reunions or anything like that. I think we all understand that, and that, I also think, is why religion thrives, because it takes your mind off of it. Yeah. That is one of the major functions of religion, is to get your mind off off of your mortality and try to convince you that there's more to your life and this universe than what meets the eye. Yeah. I think that what he says here kind of accidentally admits that 
this is the reality of the situation, but he's going to cling to his religious beliefs to the bitter end here. Yeah. With the, I never, I was never able to thank my father line. I was thinking, but what did you learn? You know, this is what's important. Not that you thanked him. You thanked him honestly by being the kid that you were by loving him back. I think that that was the way that you thanked him. But I think the more important question here is what did you learn? Abba was smart, and he tried to get Pi to think critically. The problem is, he never quite got there, not yeah. even as an adult. So there's no happy ending here where he figures out that this is all bullshit and starts thinking rationally and critically like, like his father would. That doesn't happen here, folks. Spoiler alert. So after all he's been through, he's been, he's been out there for months. Yeah. And now we see him in a hospital being questioned by... Japanese insurance adjusters. They're trying to figure out why the ship sank. I think it sank because a bunch of drunk idiots let it sink. Yeah. But there's got to be more to the story than that. So Pi tells them the story as he remembers it. And they basically tell him, look, we can't base a report on carnivorous islands, tigers, and floating bananas. Um, give us something more believable. That was the thing the orangutan was supposed to have made its way to the raft by floating on bananas. And someone makes the point, I think the, the author makes the point that bananas don't float. I haven't had a chance to try this experiment myself. I don't know. But it seems feasible. So now we find ourselves wondering, are we about to find out what really happened? Because here's the story that he tells them. And this right here really encapsulates, in my mind, the stark contrast between the siren song of religion and the harshness of reality. Yeah. Because I'm willing to believe, based on the way that Pi tells this story, that it has to be true. Because no one would recount certain parts of this story, especially about their own mother and the yeah. things that happened to her. They wouldn't tell the story this way if it wasn't true. No one would think about some of the things that he talks about here happening to someone that he loves. So, in my opinion, this is the true story. The cook and the sailor, and this is... and. This is how he recounts it. I'm going to paraphrase his very long speech. The cook and the sailor were on board the lifeboat. The sailor had fallen in and was injured. Pie was adrift, and they threw him a life ring and pulled him into the boat. His mother was holding onto some bananas and somehow made it into the boat. He describes the cook as a disgusting man. He tried to play the rugged survivalist, and even though they had provisions aboard, he decided it would be a good idea to amp up the shock value, and eat a rat. Yeah. He killed it, dried it in the sun, and ate it. Ew. Uh. Pai describes the cook as a brute, but also resourceful. The raft was the cook's idea, and the entire purpose of it was actually to catch fish. The sailor was also the happy Buddhist, and he didn't say much, but he was, as Pai put it, suffering. He had broken his leg in several places, and apparently the injury was pretty extensive. They tried to set the leg, but it became infected. The cook told them that they had to do something or the sailor would die. In the book, I think they come right out and say that he amputated the leg. The sailor died probably from shock and or more likely blood loss. He just didn't make it. The book goes on to explain that the only reason why the cook did this was so that he could have something that was handleable to use for bait. Yeah. Ew. Again. Yeah. 
The next day, the cook catches a Dorado, which a quick Google search taught me was the weird-ass fish that we saw Pi catch and bludgeon earlier. Pi's mother was furious at this whole thing, furious at the cook for, you know, just, just this blatant act of disrespect. He basically took this guy's life so that he could use him to save his own. So Pi's mother was absolutely livid at this point and accused the cook of letting the sailor die so they would have bait. The cook was furious and started for Pi's mother, who smacked him hard across the face. And for whatever reason, I guess maybe he was just really, really stunned that she even had the audacity. Um, at that point, he backs off. He doesn't try to kill her. But Pi then describes some of the cook's other behavior. And yeah, he softened the messaging a little by saying that the sailor, quote, went the way of the rat. So, you know, uh, keep in mind, there was plenty of food on board. I'm yeah. just, that's, just that's, saying. it's important to understand this as it tells you a lot about this guy. A week after the whole bait incident, things come to a head between the cook and Gita. They were trying to reel in a turtle and it slipped out of Pi's hands. The cook got angry and punched Pi up the side of the head and made him see stars. And that just was not going to fly with Ama. Oh no. She started wailing on the cook and yelled for Pi to get to the raft. But as he was swimming away, he looked back just in time to see the knife come out. And we also know what's about to happen here. The book, way more graphic than what's uh, described in the movie. Way more graphic. The cook throws Gita's lifeless body overboard and sharks quickly show up to... Yeah. 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 And Pi was watching all of this happen. So on the heels of all of this... There's a good bit of righteous anger going on here. A crime of passion's about to take place. He says, the next day I killed him. He didn't even fight back. He knew he had gone too far, even by his standards. He left a knife out on the bench, and I did to him what he did to the sailor. So, double ew. If you're you're reading into that, what I'm reading into it, double Mm. ew. He was such an evil man, but worse still, he brought the evil out in me. I have to live with that. I was alone in a lifeboat drifting across the Pacific Ocean, and I survived. And that at least satisfied the insurance adjusters enough to leave him alone. Right. Now the author pieces all of this together. He says, so the stories, both the zebra and the sailor broke their leg. The hyena killed the zebra and the orangutan. So the hyena is the cook, the sailor is the zebra, and your mother is the orangutan. And you are the tiger. So here's the question. Were either of these stories true? I have my opinion, but we're never told. And there's no real way to know. Pi says, I've told you two stories about what happened out on the ocean. Neither explains what caused the sinking of the ship. And no one can prove which story is true and which is not. In both stories, the ship sinks, my family dies, and I suffer. And the author says, true. And Pi says, so which story do you prefer? And here's the line that I've used many times so far on this show. The author says, the story with the tiger, that's the better story. And Pi says, this this gave me goosebumps the first time I heard it. Now it's like, oh, come on. He says, thank you. And so it goes with God. We all choose what we consider to be the better story. Right. It's just in our nature. And the author says, so your story has a happy ending. And Pi says, that's up to you. The story is yours now. So I guess what we're supposed to take from this is this 
is that this is how the book came about. Right. Um, at the very end, we discover that Pi's happily ever after involves a wife, a cat, and two children. He has achieved normalcy right. in his life. We also find out that the adjusters chose their better story, too, because sometimes reality is just a bit too much to bear. And in my mind, anyway, so it is with God. At the end of all of that, after giving this kid such a hard time and telling them that they need something that they can take back to their bosses that doesn't make them look like fools, here's what winds up in their report. He says, Mr. Patel's is an astounding story of courage and endurance unparalleled in the history of shipwrecks. Very few castaways can claim to have survived so long at sea and none in the company of an adult Bengal tiger. Yeah. So they chose their better story too. Right. Because at the end of the day, the truth or the perceived truth based on the way that Pi presented it to them was too grisly and gruesome. Strange islands and tigers Definitely more entertaining yeah. than cannibal cooks and murderous teenage boys. You know, yeah. cannibal cooks and the uh, and the teenage boys who murder them. So they reverted to the original story. They decided that they'd rather look like fools than have to relive that part of things in their head ever again. Yeah. One of the key lessons that I learned from this movie is that we look to religion not to enhance our reality, but to find a means of escape from it. Reality is dark. It's uncomfortable. It lacks luster. Tigers, carnivorous floating islands, and harrowing tales of survival in the face of certain death is far more exciting. Just ask any Japanese insurance adjuster. The likely truth of Pai's experience was more believable, but far more disturbing. In the end, the adjusters chose the story that makes them look like fools over having to reiterate a far more grisly tale of murder and cannibalism. In much the same way, Religion purports to provide the better story in the lives of believers. We trade uncomfortable details like mortality for tales of eternal life. We trade being mundane average humans for the ability to speak in tongues, prophesy, and heal. We trade being on our own, riding on a mode of dust in a sunbeam, occupying a tiny fragment of a huge indifferent universe we will likely never fully understand, to having a grandfatherly celestial being watching over us, answering prayers, answering life's questions, and making our lives better just by existing. Mm -hmm. I do appreciate how the movie doesn't downplay Appa's atheistic messaging, just lays it out there for consumption along with the rest. But like I said in the beginning, there's no equal time here. We know what the filmmakers and the author of the book wanted us to know. Mamaji thought that Pi could make the author believe in God. Did he at the end? Who knows? I feel like he wasn't really swayed but he didn't go to Pi looking for spiritual truth either. He went looking for an idea that he could use for a new book. Pi also wasn't really playing the role of the evangelist. He also just laid out what he believed and let the author draw his own conclusions. When it came to religion, Pi took the best parts of every religion's stories and adopted them all cumulatively. Pi had a very universalist way of looking at God, but whether he realized it or not, he demonstrated that Appa was right. By believing in everything, he really did opt to believe in nothing. It was when I adopted polytheism that I made a giant leap toward atheism, because it didn't take long to figure out that all the gods I believed in were constructs. Yeah. They existed in my mind and nowhere outside of it. I chose the ones that had the best stories. 
ones that complemented who I thought I was and where I was in my life at the time. I subsequently went from believing in everything to believing in nothing, and it didn't take long. Also, it wasn't the gods that had an impact on Pi. It was the people who taught him about the gods that had impacted him, along with the emotional responses he had to things like Krishna's story and the Stations of the Cross. And whether it's Vishnu, Krishna, Allah, or Christ, no matter how we see God, we're only seeing ourselves. God's will will always match our preferences, and his opinions will always match our own. We're looking into the tiger's eyes and only seeing our own emotions reflected back at us. If the tiger in this instance is God, God certainly is not our friend. Let's forget about the details of the two stories for a minute. What is the real better story in any given situation? The one that entertains us more or the one that contains the truth? The truth isn't always exciting or happy. And let's face it, it can be downright disturbing. But regardless of how we respond or react to it, the truth is also very empowering. When Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, I don't think he framed it in the right context, because the truth might not be the definition of the better story in terms of how it makes us feel, but it is the better story in how it makes us think, how we view ourselves, and how we perceive the lives that we live. So let me ask you, What's the better story when it comes to our lives and how we live them? The one that robs you of a life lived on your terms, forcing you to conform to a set of stringent rules and a lifestyle of self-denial so you can get a prize after you die, or the one that encourages you to live life to the fullest because you only get one and it will eventually end. One keeps you shackled to an imaginary deity or two or 20 or 300 million a laundry list of man-made rules, and an arbitrary moral code that leaves no room for individual thought or opinion. The other lets you think for yourself, make your own choices within certain acceptable social, legal, and societal parameters, and acknowledges your ability to make good ones without the influence of a deity. Now I ask you, which of those opinions is the one that makes the most sense? The one that leaves you shackled or the one that liberates your mind of the burden of belief and leads to getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.